Oh, yart. Hello and what is the crack? Welcome to the Blind Buy podcast. I'm recording this from a hotel room in Sydney in Australia and it has required a considerable amount of effort for me to get the audio fidelity right because the table in the room is glass and when when you record a podcast on a glass table it sounds disgusting. So the glass table is has currently got a mattress on it and then my laptop is on a mattress. If someone was to walk into the room, I'd look incredibly strange. I've basically deconstructed the entire bed and placed it on the fucking table in the corner. So yeah, that's the crack. I'm in Australia on an incredibly intensive tour. Um, it's It's good crack, it's good fun. But it's that type of fun where you're just non-stop busy. So basically, I'm here a week and I've done nearly five gigs already. So I'm gigging, getting to bed, waking up the next morning, getting onto a flight, flying to a different part of Australia, gigging, going to bed, getting onto a flight. So it's it's non-stop uh, work, work, work. Um, But I have been meeting some absolutely fucking incredible people and seeing some beautiful things. The weather here is nice and mild, which is nice because it's the summer here, so I was expecting it to be fucking unfeasibly hot, but it's not. It's quite mild. The bushfires seem to literally get... They got quenched the second I landed in, in Australia because the torrents of rain came down. So that's about it. I have for you this week, um, I've had access to some pretty fucking incredible guests here in Australia. Um, I had a lot of trouble getting guests because no one knows who the fuck I am over here. Um, Although I'm being pleasantly surprised. Like, I thought my live podcasts would like just be fucking Irish people. My fear was is that the live podcast would be full of Irish people who moved here in like 2011 because of the recession who would come to the live podcast because of my previous work with the Rubber Bandits and that's a completely different audience and I was afraid that they'd arrive at my podcast show expecting me to sing songs but that's not the case um, It's a, there's no fucking Rubber Bandits people, it's all podcast listeners absolutely amazing fucking audiences and about between 50 and 40 percent australian too which i'm shocked i'm really shocked i i didn't know there was that many australian people coming to my uh, listening to my podcast so that's been amazing to get it's it, i suppose what it is is my first proper podcast where i'm playing to a non-irish audience so it, it's been absolutely incredible so i have for you a conversation that I recorded with this is a really interesting one he's uh, like a doctor of, of neuroscience and psychology right um, but his research he's doing groundbreaking research which is being funded here in Australia and as far as I know it's the only place in the world doing it he his name is Dr. Paul Lichnitsky okay I, I'm not going to attempt to spell it, but what I'll do is I, I'm going to write the, the spelling of his name in the description of this podcast because 
the research that he's doing is so interesting that I think if you're listening to this and you're part of a university in England or in Ireland, you'd want to get in contact with him. And I know that he would like to see trials of this stuff being done around the world. What he's researching is the clinical use of magic mushrooms, ecstasy, psychedelic drugs, things that we consider to be illegal recreational drugs. Dr. Lignitsky is studying these things in helping to cure people's depression and cure PTSD and prepare you know, uh, patients that are in palliative care and have severe depression because they're facing death. He's doing some incredible stuff and it's groundbreaking and it's happening right now. So I have an incredibly engaging and, and an interesting chat for you around that. Before I play it for you, just kind of a, a little disclaimer. Like, I don't want anyone listening to this podcast, someone who's, you know, suffering from depression or anxiety or someone who who has mental health issues who feels that the therapies you know going to therapists or the drugs that you might be on aren't working from i don't want you to listen to this podcast and think that you can now go away and start doing magic mushrooms or doing ecstasy as a form of self-treatment i really don't want that because it's it's irresponsible what uh paul Dignitsky is research and specifically it's not it's not like how we think of antidepressants where it's like a medicine that you take and it changes how your brain chemistry works it's it's much different he's looking into how the psychedelic experience in conjunction with supervision and specific long-term therapy can help things so it's not just it, it's it's not like take a mushroom and it helps your depression. It's like, it's it's almost shamanic. I know that it, it, it's ritualistic study of how psychedelic drugs can change a person's perception of themselves and of the world and how that, through therapy, in a controlled environment, is, is leading to success. So I let I let uh, Paul Ignitsky tell you. So before I get into this, um, just a quick one because I don't want to interrupt you halfway through the podcast. This podcast is about sponsored by you, the listener, via the Patreon page. If you're enjoying the podcast and you're liking it and you're listening to it every week, please consider supporting the podcast financially. Uh, through the Patreon, patreon.com forward slash the blind boy podcast. This is, this is what fucking allows me to have it as a full time job. This is why I'm in Australia right now doing the podcast. It's fucking fantastic. I have a life where I am earning a living from doing something I love and that's made possible because of the Patreon. So if you can afford it, please consider giving me the price of a pint or a cup of coffee once a month. And if you can't afford it, you know, you can listen for free. That's how it works. It's a model based on kindness and suggestion, and it seems to be doing fine. Also, recommend the podcast to a friend. That's the reason I'm able to fucking sell out a venue in Sydney and have half of the audience that are Australians 
who didn't know about the rubber bandits. It's because of word of mouth. It's because someone on social media or in real life said, I'm listening to this podcast and I really like it and I think you'd like it too. More than anything, that's really standing to me in terms of the podcast growing and getting to where it is right now. So please consider doing that too. Um, Because I put it out for free and it takes a lot of work. And that's just, that's the crack. That's the nature of it. Fully independent podcast. So without further ado, I don't have the ocarina with me. I didn't bring the fucking ocarina. Do you know, why did I not bring the ocarina to Australia? In case it would have gotten taken off me at customs. They're very, very peculiar here in Australia with uh, protecting their biodiversity. So if you, if you even bring over a pair of running shoes and those running shoes have Irish soil on them, you might end up like three hours in, in, in border security. So I, di- I didn't bring the ocarina because... I, I don't know, it, it looks like the type of thing that, that'd be flagged. It's, it's, an, it's an instrument that uh, is from South America and it's, it's handmade from clay and I just felt I'd get asked a bunch of questions about it. So, what can we have instead? I bought a Melbourne mug. Should we don't need the fucking ocarina, Paz? I got a mug in Melbourne that I drink horrible hotel tea out of. Very difficult to get a good cup of tea here, lads. The weather's hot, they don't enjoy their tea. They have me drinking English breakfast, which is uh, a strange perversion of what we call tea. So without further ado, here is a chat with Dr. Paul Litnitsky about the psychotherapeutic use of ecstasy and magic mushrooms to treat a full gamut of, of mental illnesses and, and emotional disorders and it's highly interesting I'll talk to you next week I've got a class I've got a very very good guest for you tonight I've got an incredibly interesting guest and this is going to be unbelievable crack um, his name is Dr. Jonathan Litnitsky and he's a doctor of psychology and neuroscience who's specialising right in the use of psychedelic substances, that means acid and yolks. <laughs> but he, he's an expert specializing in the use of acid and yolks to treat depression, addiction, and mental illness. Jonathan, come out. First up, Blind Boy, can I call, should I call you Mr. Boat Club? No, Blind Boy's all right, Mr. Boat Club. All right. Are you... That's the type of thing that would get the tax man interested in you. Why are they calling him Mr. Boat Club? That sounds like the name you'd have if you accrued a lot of boat clubs. That's right. So I just have to tell you, you got my first name wrong, even though I've got your last name wrong. What, what, did I call you Jonathan? Yeah. Where the fuck did I get that from? I know. Is it Paul? You got, you're the only person who's ever pronounced my last name right. Okay, very good. I practiced that one. What's your first name? Paul. Paul. Okay. Do you know what? I... No. Do you know what happened? One too many shows. There was a, <laughs> there was a, jo- there was a Jonathan floating about backstage <laughs> when I was typing that. I'll get him. So apologies, Paul. Um, I'm going to just 
rip off the yeah, bit terrible. where it says Jonathan because <laughs> I'm going to continue calling you Jonathan if it's there. <laughs> I'm going to call you Mr. Boat Club then. Oh, there you go. <laughs> um, oh, chewing paper. I haven't done that in a while. Next time you see Jonathan will be when you go to the toilet. <laughs> Speaking of chewing paper. <laughs> nice. Um, you are working in an area that is, I'm going to call it controversial, even though it shouldn't be, but it is controversial. It is. You're a proper fucking doctor, proper all of this carry on, and you're studying uh, LSD, mushrooms, psychedelic substances in the treatment of mental illnesses. That's right, yeah. It's an it's a interesting time in history, that's for sure. Um, yeah, so my background is in neuroscience and psychology, and I work in mental health research, and one of my areas of interest is psychedelic medicine, and it's becoming my main area of interest. Um, and we're, we're just at a fascinating moment in time now where um, the tide is, is clearly turning, and, and in Australia, I can uh, place that over the last 12 months even, things are really changing quite rapidly. Because it's one of these subjects I've noticed that's on the internet, it's actually lots of people have opinions on it. Mm. And I know people personally who are microdosing with mushrooms, mainly mushrooms, not LSD, but Irish mushrooms as a way to treat their own depression. Yeah. Which, it's encouraging, but when I hear that, it also makes me sad because... I want to hear about someone treating their depression in, in a regulated, safe way, mm. rather than them growing a lot of mushrooms in their hot press. Yeah. Do you know, um, yeah. which isn't fair, you know, we, we shouldn't have to do that. Firstly, what's the reaction that you, you're, you're, in, you're, in, the, you're in an area whereby people would be skeptical and people would doubt your credentials they would think that you're either a snake oil salesman or they might think that um, you're just using this as a way to legalize it so we can all do acid and go mad. But these are some of the perceptions right now of this area. A lot of people aren't taking it seriously. Can you speak a bit about that first? Yeah. Well, it's true um, that, that we still are in you know, this long shadow of Nixon's war on drugs um, today and the stigmas and the prejudices are there. Um, but as I said, the, the, the sentiment is shifting, and it's shifting on account of the last 15 years of research from you know, the most reputable uh, research institutes in the world um, doing the work in a high-quality way. Um, but I am also among, uh, among those who are, you know, ha have a healthy degree of skepticism about this. I'm very interested in uh, the applications and, and how it works and why it works, but... Um, you know, we're not at the point where, we, where it's time now to, you know, set up uh, mushroom shops on every corner and psychedelic-assisted therapy centers everywhere. There's, there's, a, there's a, you know, process to doing, to doing this uh, through the scientific method, and we're very near to the, near the point where uh, we will be able to see psychedelics registered as legal medicines, but we're not there yet. And uh, so 
we need to not get ahead of ourselves and, and stay close to the data, is my view. One thing you mentioned there, which was interesting, uh, you specifically said the damage that, that Richard Nixon has done. Can you speak about that, the history of that, and what you mean by mm. that? Yeah, absolutely. Well, Nixon, Nixon's war on drugs was a war like any other. You know, the, 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 the same uh, mechanisms that are used in any other uh, line of warfare were, were used for, for drugs. Uh, year, decades after um, Nixon's administration, uh, there was... Uh, an interesting set of admissions from John Ehrlichman, who was one of his top advisors. Uh, after he had come out of prison, he, he had some candid interviews, and he basically... After who came out of prison? John Ehrlichman. Okay. Yeah. Uh, he was, what, uh, what was he in prison for? Uh, some uh, government stoogery, yeah. Okay. Just uh, slipping that in. After yeah. Nixon's top advisor uh, yeah. came out of prison... That's right. And Nixon <laughs> like, didn't... What? Yeah. Um, so John Ehrlichman, who was, you know, ostensibly the architect of the war on drugs, really said quite candidly that the Nixon administration had two key enemies. They were black people mm -hmm. and the anti-war left, the people that were against the Vietnam War. And they devised a plan to associate those two groups with drugs, to reschedule those drugs in, in the most uh, prohibitive way, and then basically to use that to target those groups and to vilify them night after night on the evening news and put the leaders in prison and prevent what they were doing. And John Ehrlichman says, and I quote, he says in this interview in the 90s, did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. And, and another thing as well from that era that I heard about was conservatism. So like Nixon was a Republican. So conservatives didn't have an appeal to emotion, right? So if you think of the late 60s in America with the, the uh, I don't want to say the left, but we say the Democrats, so that means John F. Kennedy. John F. Kennedy was, like, some people say John F. Kennedy was elected because the debate between Kennedy and Nixon was the first ever televised uh, debate between presidents. Kennedy was a, a young, good-looking man, and Nixon, who hadn't done much television, had a five o'clock shadow and looked like he drank a lot of whiskey. Yeah. And they say that he, he lost it on... on aesthetic grounds, people just, it was the celebrity thing, but also the movement, you had the hippie movement, mm. you had uh, the cultural revolution of the 60s, and people on the left really had something to believe in, they had a feeling of what we are doing feels good, mm. and conservatism was left with nothing, mm. we are just conservatives who want to keep things the way they are, mm. and from that, that's when conservatism began to be associated with uh, Christian fundamentalism mm. for the first time because it's like, well, these people are on the side of peace and love, but guess what we're on the side of? Fucking God. Mm. Yeah. Started in the, the late 70s with, with, with Nixon and, and them. Yeah. And also then the drugs came into that too. Mm. So are you saying that then so that... because. Well, the, the first anti-drugs campaigns in America around the late 70s and early 80s, were they openly lying about the dangers of smoking marijuana, the dangers Absolutely. of... Absolutely. Yeah, and, and those campaigns started earlier than that. So, you know, Nixon's war on drugs was in 70, and then there were a whole set of international treaties that uh, the vast majority of countries in the world signed up to, um, Australia being so, one of them. So America started that shit. Yeah, so the, 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 the Psychotropic Substance Act was uh, you know, ratified by the UN, but it was written by Nixon's administration and signed on to by almost every country. Um, 
and you know, and and you know, to give to give a sense of the situation we're in at the moment and 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 the turning tide, we have we still have this uh, this shadow of, of of a propaganda campaign that didn't only involve a kind of cultural war where they were spreading lies and showing these adverts about how you know marijuana will will take your children away from you and, and whatever but actually you know these drugs were classified in in america uh, classical psychedelics are classified in what's called schedule one it's equivalent to schedule nine here i don't know what it is in ireland and um that's the most prohibitive scheduling that's where you Cla- class find a we call them class a Class A, okay, yeah. yeah. So that's where you find heroin and crack cocaine yeah. and ice, um, and it's a it's a scheduling reserve for compounds that have high abuse potential and no medical no known medical value. And that was clearly a lie when that happened in 1970, because prior to 1970, you had 15 years of some pretty intensive research in psychedelic psychotherapy. Uh, it was really that's the, what I want to talk about. Yeah. yeah. So it was it was the next big thing in psychiatry in in America and in Europe. It was taking psychiatry by storm, and you have um, there were about over 40,000 people were administered with LSD legally prior to prohibition. Uh, you had six international conferences dedicated to LSD alone. Uh, you know, many books, thousands of journal articles. It was a it was a burgeoning field, and there's nothing like it in science. It's, it's completely unprecedented where you have a political move that uh, leads to policy change that should be determined by science and medicine. You know, what's the abuse potential of a drug? You know, uh, what's the medical value of the drug? These are scientific questions. Um, and there was clearly evidence to show that there was a lot of medical value to be had there. There are risks, and we can get into them soon. Uh, and, but the abuse potential is negligible for psychedelics. Classical psychedelics, uh, you don't see dependence. Um, you don't see uh, 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 physical uh, um, addictions. Uh, you know, you get these, you know, these uh, studies where you have a little mouse in a, in a cage and it can administer some drug to itself, and you, know, you give it you know, uh, cocaine or something and it will just tap the cocaine lever until it dies, until it, it starves, dies, yeah. you know? Uh, you, you, give, you put LSD in one of those, it taps it once and it never taps it again. So <laughs> it's... Um, <laughs> Yeah, so it's really like the, the, the last thing people think when they've come out of a big hero's dose psychedelic journey is, where can I get some more of that? It's like, yeah, oh, I need a few months to process this. Yeah. yeah. Um, so the, the abuse potential is very low. Um, yeah, certainly there are risks and we, we do need to get into the risks, but basically there were lies that, they, that, they were, that, that made it into legislature. And, you know, I don't, I don't spend my time bemoaning the fact that that's the situation we operate in and it affects our, uh, you know, what we do dramatically. Like these are illegal compounds. To, to run one of these psychedelic trials costs about five times what it would if the scheduling was different. Yeah, because it's, it's, it's worth mentioning, you're allowed, you're someone who is legally allowed to work with LSD, to work with MDMA, yeah? Well, it's complicated. <laughs> um, yes, the, the, the study that I work on, so I, I'm, a, I'm an investigator on Australia's first psychedelic trial at St. Vincent's Hospital and also involved in establishing a number of others. It's just kicking off now. Yeah, so it's, it's just happening right now. And yes, the study is, is uh, authorised to import uh, these substances and store them and dispense them you know, to the study. So you can't make your own LSD. You have to, who are you buying it from? 
There's, there's, a, there's a couple of great guys on, on a corner in England. They're actually in England. Um, do you have to get dark web LSD to no, do no, your no. trials? <laughs> no. it, it is something that's made in a laboratory by Absolutely, people who are yeah. allowed no, to no, do so it. It's, it well, this is one of the costs that in order to produce uh, these compounds in a way that is considered clinically uh, okay, it's called a, um, a, a GMP, uh, uh, it's, a, it's a kind of clinical practice, a clinical grade. It costs so much more to produce the same substance in that kind of environment. And so there are, it's actually, there are very few producers on the planet who produce uh, psilocybin. A lot of paperwork as well, I'm guessing. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, and so there are only a few producers that, that, that manufacture psilocybin, MDMA, LSD, DMT at that level. And we, we actually, we get it through <laughs> there are these organizations overseas that have spent, you know, costs upwards of half a million dollars just to get your first milligram. Oh, my God. Yeah. And, uh, but then it costs a lot less to get your next kilogram. But um, <laughs> uh, so these, these uh, organizations that have, that have got labs to produce this GMP, psilocybin, and MDMA in this case, they give us this, uh, these compounds for free. Uh, okay. Because yeah. we give safety data back to them, so it's 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 a it's it's a working relationship. Yeah. Um, just a quick one there. You mentioned psilocybin is that's the active chemical in magic mushrooms. Correct. Yeah. Do they have to give you like psilocybin the chemical, or do they just grow mushrooms and give you mushrooms? Yeah. So far, all the last fifteen years of research, and that's what it's been. So we've had we had fifteen years prior to prohibition, prior to the nineteen seventy, and then the better part of four decades in, in you know, Sleeping Beauty land. And then we've had another 15 years of you know, a, a gradual uptick that's accelerated dramatically uh, over the last five years. And all the, the trials that have been conducted over the last 15 years, the modern era, use synthetic psilocybin. But in the future, I imagine there will be some organic psilocybin used. It's interesting, this is an interesting question that a lot of the, uh, you know. It, it, just sorry, yeah. a quick one. Is that because of stigma? Is it like seen as no. You can't have someone chewing on a mushroom. No, no. <laughs> it I don't must so. look like a drug. I don't think so. I, I think it mainly comes down to the um, pragmatic constraints of producing GMP psilocybin. It's purity. Uh, you need it to be pure. You need it to be exact. Yeah, exact, and, and yeah. Uh, it, it needs to have nothing else in it. Um, and that's just easier to do if you synthesize it. But, um, but. Yeah, what's interesting is that there there are folk in the you know in the psychonautic community that we sometimes might disparagingly refer to as plant heads who uh, who have raised concerns about you know using synthetic psilocybin as though it was somehow not the real medicine, um, and there's a, you know who knows there may be some interesting other components in organic psilocybin that are important and therapeutically relevant. But uh, an interesting story about that is. Um, the old Mazatec Indian woman, Maria Sabina, who is famous for being the, f the person who gave the first Westerner, uh, Gordon Wasson, um, a psychedelic. Um, and, uh, and, and she became, you know, heralded as, a, as, as an important figure in the kind of early, um, you know, early wave of psychedelic use, Gordon Wasson, Aldous Huxley, um, those guys. And, and she, many years later, she was a curandera, like a shaman. She was given synthetic psilocybin and asked her opinion on it, and she said, it's the same, the spirit of psilocybin is there. It's, you know, so she couldn't tell the difference. I, so I've got friends who will smoke DMT through a pipe, but then they claim that it's not the same as an ayahuasca ceremony. And then, well, now, see, the ayahuasca ceremonies in Ireland are weird. 
it is possible to do ayahuasca ceremonies in Ireland, but it's usually by people who are they're a little bit too much into Christ. <laughs> so then these people will travel to Brazil and do an ayahuasca ceremony there as it's intended, and they said that's the best one, the full eight-hour puke your ring up business. I don't want to get onto DMT yet. What I would like you to talk about is, we'll say, let's just take MDMA as an example, ecstasy. The history of ecstasy in, in the 50s and 60s and, and its, its use in psychotherapy before it was ever used recreationally. Tell us about that, what, what, was, what was happening and what was it for? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that MDMA was, again, one of these, along with LSD, MDMA was, was heavily used, in, in particular in America, in psychiatric uh, environments. Um, it was, you know, there were all kinds of experiments that happened, and, and some of them, you know, not very smart. Um, I was just reading the other day about um, an experiment in, in, I think, the late 50s where they gave LSD to autistic children. Uh, which yeah, made me grateful that I'm in this era uh, doing the work now. But um, uh, MDMA was used as a marriage counselling adjunct. Um, yeah, couples therapy, it yeah. was. Yeah, that was, and, and, and to great effect. And actually, it's interesting, you see the echoes of this happening now. I was just on, the, on a call last week with a woman who's, who's running a trial uh, using MDMA to treat post-traumatic stress disorder, which yeah. is its main indication, its main use currently. And she has a trial where she has the person with PTSD and their partner, their romantic partner, in the room. They both take MDMA, and then they do a form of therapy called conjoint therapy, a kind of couples therapy, uh, and it seems to great effect. So, And is the issue there that the person with PTSD is ha having issues with connecting with their partner? Is that it? The, it's complex. The issue is that the, that PTSD is also born out in the relationship, and the person who is not diagnosed with PTSD often has a kind of trauma on account of who they're with. Um, but also, there's a lot of research that suggests that we get much better sustained outcomes when the therapy can be transmitted and carried on in some way by the close people in a person's life. So, wow. Yeah. So if 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 there is, they're doing this with eating disorders now quite a bit where um, the, the caregivers, the parent or the sibling or, or the, the partner of, of a person with eating disorders is also brought into the therapeutic room, taught these skills and then, you know, continues to, to somehow support their, their close one in, in a particular way. So there's a way in which it's, it's about sustaining the outcomes by bringing uh, the relationship into the therapeutic environment and, uh, and, and that relationship becoming therapeutic in the longer term rather than just the session. And one of the big, uh, I don't want to say problems, right, but one of the big walls that I've always seen that's faced uh, psychotherapy is it's so hard to measure results and prove them in a psychotherapy as opposed to just drugs. Do you know, how, how do you go about proving or, sh or not, not proving, but showing data that this therapy is better when the person's sister is present or the person's brother is present. Yeah, it's not simple, but uh, there are ways to do it. I mean, you, you know, the, the gold standard in, in, in medical science is the, the randomized controlled double-blind placebo trial, you know, where you have a, a number of groups and you give 
what you think are active ingredients to one group and, and, and not to the other group. Um, it's, it's hard to work these things out. And then you, you, know, we, you, you give surveys, and we, you know, we're psychologists, we have a survey for everything. We'll get into the, the psychedelic experience soon, which is an interesting one to try and put surveys to. Yeah. Um, but, um, <laughs> yeah, but, uh, but, but we've done it, um, and, we, and we're doing it. Um, but it's, um, you know, it's not straightforward uh, to, to, to do this work well, and, and, and it's imperative that we do do it well. Uh, the placebo is, is just one of, of a number of key issues that the psychedelic science field is dealing with. Because if you think about how it... How do you do placebo <laughs> acid, though? Like Exactly. <laughs> oh, shit, yeah. It's very you hard to placebo you blind. Can't not, you can't give someone a placebo and say, this is acid. You, you, yeah, you, 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 well, no, you can. Because you, you, then you start you, to think that reality is hallucination. <laughs> it is. <laughs> no, no, the issue is that you only get about one hour of the placebo effect when, when you know, after you give an MDMA... Uh, um, so or, are you literally doing trials where you give one person ecstasy and one person not ecstasy, correct. but you say that it is? Like a well, bad no, dealer. No, no, everybody... <laughs> <laughs> exactly. No, everybody knows it's a placebo-controlled trial. They know they could get one or the other. They don't know what it is. But the, everybody knows he's had the active dose one hour in. Do you know what, though? We've all been in the situation when we were kids where someone either tries to buy hash and you're sold a piece of turf and you don't know the difference. <laughs> and what happens is... No one wants to admit that it's not real and you don't know what being stoned is like. You play along, yeah. So you end up going, oh man, the music sounds so great. Yeah. And you're pretend, like everyone's been pretend stoned when they were younger because someone sold you shit. Is, is that stuff happening? Because if, if you have a group of people and you hand three people real ecstasy and another three people not real ecstasy, fake ecstasy, the fake ecstasy people are going to start taking their tops off as well. <laughs> yeah, not so much in the treatment room because it's just you and, and, and the psychotherapists and, um, and there's no points for guessing, you know, who, who's had it and who hasn't. But, you know, it's interesting that a lot of people derive um, a substantial kind of benefit from these placebo sessions. It's a, this happened just recently in Melbourne. Um, so on this, uh, the, the first psychedelic trial in Australia, this is a placebo-assisted, uh, placebo, this is a psilocybin-assisted psychotherapy trial to treat depression and anxiety in people who have a terminal diagnosis. And it's... Uh, a terminal diagnosis, as in yeah. these people are dying? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so the trial is, is uh, um, sponsored by St. Vincent's Hospital and headed up by um, a wonderful colleague, Dr. Marg Ross. And um, she just had a, a placebo session, and it's an interesting one, because uh, the dosing session is eight hours long. Mm -hmm. You're in a room with two psychotherapists, or it's a, in this case, it's a psychiatrist and a psychologist, and, uh, and the dosing session is eight hours long, but uh, after about four hours uh, of, of the placebo session, she, she, she couldn't find any good way to keep the... the patient in the room any longer, you know, this is four hours, they're lying there, they got a little bit bored of the playlist and they've had their conversations and it's four hours and nothing's happening, so she went home. Um, but with the person who's taken psilocybin, they will happily stay there for eight hours. You betcha. <laughs> yeah, no, they're, 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 in, they're in no hurry to leave. And, and, and is this, 
these are these problems that are unique to this type of research then? Yeah, absolutely. It's, yeah, there, there is no other treatment that entails an eight-hour session. You know, how are you going to bill for that? Think about scaling this in the future. Yeah. Um, but That's yeah. a big day for the person, for the psychiatrist. <laughs> it is. Totally. This is one of the reasons it's so expensive. I mean, you know... And that therapist has to stay within grounded mm. and professional for that amount of time. Yeah. Well, they can't start scratching their feet like... Or, That's right. Yeah. No, no, it's, in, it's intensive. You've got two therapists in the room, and, you know, so there is an opportunity for one person to leave momentarily. Um, but it's an intensive uh, uh, treatment session. Um, uh, yeah. But having said that, Paul, right, would you not... Shamans, for years, have done just that. Who's shamans? Sh not Seamus. <laughs> Is that your man? <laughs> uh, I'm Jonathan. Oh, were you joking? Okay, <laughs> no, no, okay. No, I wasn't joking. No. Not, <laughs> not a guy called Seamus. Shamans. Shamans. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Limerickian. Yeah. Shamans. Shamans do this. Shamans yeah. will... A shaman's job is not just to bring the substance to the person, but it's to guide them through a session yeah. for a long period of time and to sit with them. That's right. So, is there any element of, of your research? Are you, are you looking at, uh, we'll say, communities that, that have been doing this for a long time? It's just not called medicine, it's called spiritualism. Certainly the researchers that, that are in the field are well aware of you know, the, the history of these compounds and how they've been used um, and, and in many ways, you know, there's a whole neo-shamanic movement as well, and ayahuasca circles that you reference yeah. are a very common thing. Probably the most uh, common way that Australians consume psychedelics uh, non-recreationally is an ayahuasca circle. Um, but and you don't consider that recreational? Well, it, uh, yeah, the, the term recreational is, yeah. is, is, a, is a complex what do you one. Mean? Uh, yeah. let, let, me, let me put it this way. Non, uh, yeah, uh, uh, the, the, there's no clinical use so far. We don't have legal clinical um, uh, use of psychedelics. Um, and, and so what we typically see are you know, two broad camps you know, of, of use. And this is, just, this is just a way of thinking about it. It's not necessarily how it plays out in the world. But you, you see what we call recreational use, which is usually in, um, uh, you know, in a party environment without a, a specific set of intentions. And, a festival. And without, uh, yeah, and not guided or, or exactly. It's yeah. not facilitated. Whereas, so the closest we have to, to a, a clinical setting is the neo-shamanic ayahuasca yeah. type circle. There's an intention, there's an organization to it, there's a facilitator, there's a trajectory, um, and there's a degree of support. So um, that's, that's reasonably common. You know, th th there's, there are ways in which the, the shamanic and the neo-shamanic practices have had some influence on modern clinical trial protocols using psychedelics, um, but, but also minimally. I think the key ways in which um, you see some overlap are, are elements of the, the clinical protocols that uh, look like, um, uh, you know, aesthetic considerations and attempts to engender a, a sense of sacredness and reverence. Um, and there might be various, you know, you know tools and accessories that are yeah, used to that cause, end. Yeah, because that's the thing. Like, taking a psychedelic, which is, affects your mood, like a doctor, I'm not having a good trip in a doctor's office. Mm. If, even if I was to smoke a joint in a doctor's mm. office, I'm going to get 
a whitener. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I, yeah. I need to be in a room with lights like that yeah. and, and a bit of Bob Marley playing, you know? Yeah, that's right. And, and this enhances yeah. what I'm looking for. Yeah, that, the, these, the, the, this is one of the ways in which the clinical environment for psychedelic trials doesn't resemble other trials. And there are many ways it doesn't resemble other trials, but one of the ways is just in the physical appearance of the room. Uh, there's a lot of care taken to set it up in, in an aesthetically pleasing, beautiful way with often, you know, candles or flowers or yeah. even a Buddha or something like that, uh, depending on who the participant is and what yeah. works for them. And, um, and we know very much that these compounds, the classical psychedelics in particular, um, are uh, compounds that, r that dramatically exacerbate your inner state and your response to your outer, outer environment. You know, Stan Groff called them uh, non-specific amplifiers. I don't think that's exactly true. I think there's something that's very specific about what happens with psychedelics. Yeah. But there's a component of it that is a non-specific amplifier. And, and if you are in an environment that is likely to make you feel anxious to some small degree when yeah. you're sober, that's likely to inflate dramatically yes. when you're tripping on, on acid. So there's a lot of care taken in setting up the environment to be conducive to the therapeutic process. Um, I'm going to be caught on an interval shortly if you have itchy feet for pints. Um, so just, just to let you know, that'll be shortly, that the bar will be open. Um, I love how that moderated with another perfectly legal drug that they're all itching for. Right. Um, which, which, incidentally, the, the, Australia just uh, did, a, did a study that uh, replicated a couple of big studies overseas. Alcohol is by far and away the most harmful drug we've got. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Oh, and, and you, see, you see this curve where you have harm to self and harm to others on this rating scale. And where do you see mushrooms and, and, and MDMA and LSD? It's far down the, the least harmful of the substances. So, yeah. would, would you view, though, the consumption of... Like, alcohol can be consumed in a way that's safe, right? Mm. Would you view the, the consumption of alcohol in a social setting... I mean, okay, for me, what, what, one thing... I speak about alcohol a lot on my podcast, right? And I speak about consistently I evaluate my relationship with it, mm. right? So I'm, my problem isn't, it's, it's never the substance. It's how am I relating with the substance and how am I using it? Totally. So one thing I'm always cautious about is I have a history of social anxiety. So when I go to a pub, if I have to go out and hang around with my friends and be in a crowded pub, that's not my comfort zone. My comfort zone is, is being on my own. So I have to watch then, am I drinking pints to make, my feel at, make myself feel at ease mm. with an environment that makes me uncomfortable, or am I drinking because I want to do it? And it's something I always have to keep a watch over. Yeah. But do you think there is a... I don't want to use therapeutic as the word, but our value... But do, do, does our society, Irish society, Australian society, use alcohol in, in a kind of a, a bonding way, a social bonding way? Yeah, I... I, and I is, is it something that you think could be trialled? Right. <laughs> no, but seriously, like, yeah. I mean, if, if you had... Sure, we could... Yeah. We kind of do. People well, are like, if people, people want to get along together and go, let's have a pint together. Mm. No, there's, there's a lot of merit in what you're saying, and I think this, is, this speaks to uh, 
this issue that I deal with a lot where people have lost the ability to think about things in, 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 in the drug context with any yeah. kind of clarity. So there are clearly drugs that are bad for you out there. You know, uh, there's not a whole lot of you know, crack cocaine that you can smoke that, 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 that'll end up being good for you. It's, really, it's likely to be a bad thing. And then d- down, down the other end of the spectrum, really the way you use these substances matters a lot. And we've drawn an interesting boundary, not, uh, the, the line that we draw in the sand typically is not between misuse and positive use, we draw a line in the sand between illegal and legal. Yeah. And so I, I encounter the circular argument often, you know, psychedelics are, are dangerous. Why are they dangerous? Because they're illegal. Why are they illegal? Because they're dangerous. And, um, yeah. and so this happens a lot. And, and we need to uh, find ways to distinguish between um, misuse, and there is misuse even of psychedelics. Uh, you know, I, I feel like that's in some ways um, potentially maybe a minor uh, 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 fallout of the of the scientific um, uh, renaissance in psychedelic uh, research, uh, but you do see a bit of this kind of you know hashtag because science justification of of yeah. psychedelic misuse because now it's becoming a thing. Um, but really, I think we need to think about how we use these substances. And alcohol is no different. Absolutely, I don't think alcohol is all bad by any means. It can be wonderful and. And, and a trial, like you're suggesting, could be a good thing to do. Um, or, or, as well, it could be used as... Like I said there, the idea of meeting your friends and having a little bit of alcohol to enhance the situation, to increase bonding, to mm. relax, mm. is utterly normalised. Yeah. And that could help with... That's normal, but the idea of... I'm going to hospital in the afternoon with my wife to take acid. Seems mad. Do you get me? Right. But well, it is a little mad the in a hospital setting, but that's a temporary situation, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. It's, you know, we still have these, these stigmas associated with it and, and, and these prejudices. But bear in mind, of course, the psychedelic experience is mad. Like, it, yeah, it is not yeah. like getting a little tipsy with your buddy. Um, yeah. and, 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 you know, this is one of the things that I'm most interested in is how it works. You know, what does the heavy lifting for mental illness w- when we think about psychedelics? Because, you know, there's, there's a reciprocal loop between understanding how things work and making the treatment better. Um, and th- there, is, there are all kinds of interesting ideas and all kinds of interesting research that's coming in on a, on a weekly basis that, that further, you know, uh, shows us what it is that could be important here. Uh, but a key to understanding uh, the, the beneficial effects of psychedelics is understanding something of the psychedelic experience itself. A lot of people ask me questions about like reductive brain mechanisms, and they're interesting and they're important, and we do need to understand brain mechanisms better. Does that mean literally looking at brainwave patterns and things while someone is taking a psychedelic? Yeah, so yeah. Th- these experiments are being done, and, and looking at long-term changes in, in you know, brain functionality over time. Um, and that's important. That gives us some uh, information about how it works. Uh, and we can talk about that a bit. Um, but what, what I think is more informative um, at this point in our understanding of how the brain and the mind work uh, with respect to psychedelic medicine is looking at the subjective experience, the phenomenological experience of psychedelics. And it, it, it is an experience like no other. Um, and, and there are key elements of the experience that uh, seem to be 
incredibly important in, in delivering these therapeutic outcomes. So this has, been, this has been borne out in quite a few large psychedelic trials now. Um, certain kinds of subjective reports that people make uh, after the psychedelic experience, about their psychedelic experience, um, predict beneficial clinical outcomes better than the dose, better than the intensity of the experience. There's, there's certain kinds of experiences. And in, and in some way, I think about this treatment approach as delivering a certain kind of experience. You need a serotonergic agonist, called a psychedelic. You need the right kind of uh, setting, the right environment. You need the right mindset going in. You need the right cast of characters. You need a whole set of ingredients. And if you get that right, which the vast majority of clinical trials in the modern era have gotten right, the safety profile is excellent, and it can be incredibly effective. I mean, what we see... But, but then the thing is, my idea of a calm environment that would be good for me to take LSD could be very different to someone else's. Yeah. So what do you do to find out what is this person's optimal safe space? Yeah, so, we, we, you know, we will move over time into better and better optimization and tailoring, but for now, it seems good enough to have... Uh, based on the data, to have a, a nicely decorated clinical setting with two therapists who you've gotten to know for a number of psychotherapy sessions prior. So the typical protocol is you have about three psychotherapy sessions without the drug beforehand, and you learn some, in, some important things to prepare you for the, for the dosing session. So you learn about how to not avoid your experience because it can be incredibly challenging. The vast majority of participants that go through these clinical trials rate the psychedelic experience as among the most challenging of their lives, uh, and, and a similar proportion rated as among the most valuable and important in their lives. So it's a big, big experience, and you need some pre preparation going in, and you need to develop trust and an alliance with those therapists. And then there, then there are protocols around how we, we do the dosing session, and then there are integration therapy sessions afterwards. You meet your psychotherapists multiple times after each dosing session. So the typical protocol involves one or two or three dosing sessions. And before and after every one of those, you'll have about three psychotherapy sessions. So there's a lot of support. Um, and yep, absolutely, it's not perfect for everybody. You have things like uh, playlists where uh, you know, people don't vibe with the, with the tunes. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. And want to change it or take it off? That's fine. You have these options. You work around it. Um, Does the person bring their own playlist? They can in some trials and not in others. I mean, the, the so is this a real doctory way of saying this person likes Pink Floyd? That's right. <laughs> wow. <laughs> that's right. But you know, given what the, the psychedelic experience is like, uh, because you, people are so sensitive to their context and so mm -hmm. influenced by their context, the music uh, plays an, an important part. Um, and, and can, can be disruptive or, or facilitatory. So um, th there's, in, in the dosing sessions, there's typically um, a, what's called a non-directive approach. So it's, it's led by the, the patient, and, and the, the, the psychotherapist is not doing active psychotherapy a lot yeah. of the time, or at least it's very responsive. It's not uh, interventionist. Because, you know, the patients in, in the 50s and 60s complained that they were, you know, clearly making a beeline for the most important material in their psyche with their eyes closed, and the, the therapist was interrupting them. Yeah. Um, so 
there's a, there's a non-directive approach, but then you have things like music, which can help people, f can facilitate, a, you know, emotional release and, and, and going into deeper states. Um, and so it's important to have something like that there, but then it can also be disruptive if it doesn't mm -hmm. align well. So you have to get the balance right. Yeah. Okay. Um, Paul, one thing you, you asked me backstage to ask you about was to... <laughs> <laughs> to uh, explain the nature of a psychedelic trip. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I, I did think it would be good to touch on that because um, no conversation about psychedelics that doesn't go into something about what the encounter is like does justice to, to uh, you know, the conversation. <laughs> um, and, and in many ways, I think this is where a lot of the money's at if we're trying to understand why these psychedelic substances in the context of psychotherapy seem to be so effective in, in helping people with mental distress, you need to understand some of what the experience is like. And so the reports that come out of uh, these trip sessions are interesting. They, they've diverse and varied in all kinds of ways, but there's some strong, striking uh, commonalities across them. And some studies, quite a few studies now, have measured this interesting thing I was saying before that psychologists have a, you know, a way of measuring everything. There's, there's this concept called mystical experience that's, uh, that there's a survey for. And, um, and the, uh, this particular kind of experience, which has some uh, qualities to it, some attributes to it, predicts clinical outcomes in a lot of these trials better than the dose and better than the intensity of the experience. Wow. Yeah. Um, and the mystical experience has, has various parts to it. One part of it is uh, this intense, um, um, basically, they call it ego dissolution, this, this breakdown in your sense of boundary between self and non-self, which is a phenomenal See, that's thing That's one to of those ones, like, what, what does that even mean? Like, like mm. I mean, no, but seriously, like, it's so abstract. Totally. Can you put that in, in a, for someone who's never done drugs, what does that, what's that mean? Yeah, well, this, we're getting beyond, like, technical jargon into, like, ineffable, yeah? But yeah. There, there, we are attempting to F the ineffable. It's, you know, we can make, we can make some headway. But, um, yeah, and but I think... Does ego mean my sense of, I am blind by, I am here, I'm doing a podcast... It's, it's even more pervasive than that. So you've got these stories about who you are and what your gender is and who, what your identity is and what's happened in your life. But then there is a far more fundamental aspect of your selfhood that is so pervasive that it's invisible. I mean, most things that are consistently there are invisible. And when you have a psychedelic experience, that pervasive and invisible element of your selfhood starts to shatter and can even fall apart. So, for example, when you wake up in the morning, you know you might have to take a moment to realize which city you're in because you're traveling yeah. around the world, but you don't have to take a moment to realize that you're a human being. Yeah. Or a ma you don't kind of wake up and think, am I a dog or what is, the oh no, I'm a human oh, and I'm a man. You don't, you don't go through that. You're always, you know, something. You're always a perspective that has got very particular constraints to it. And it's, it's we can dance around in an attempt to describe it, but this, this very fundamental aspect of identity and selfhood starts to fall away, and that can be frightening. Uh, but if you can go through the frightening experiences, uh, you can get to uh, an experience that is often referred to as non-dual, where there is no distinction between this experience and everything else. Um, 
and this is also an experience that's reported with other induction methods, uh, forms of meditation. Yeah, because I once, I meditate, and I said this before, and, and it's, it sounds like a mad thing, but so I was meditating regularly, like every single day, and after about a month of it, I used to meditate by a riverbank, and I woke up from the meditation, and I saw a nettle, and I felt empathy for the nettle. Yeah. And I literally felt, it was only fleeting, but I felt a deep sense of me and that nettle are some type of oneness. Totally. So what, what, what's interesting that you're describing there is, is a common kind of report in psychedelics. And one of the ways in which this may be um, relevant to, to clinical outcomes is that the way I think about it is we have a kind of... Uh, a closed, narrow aperture, kind of constraint on our perception of reality that is uh, born out of our need for self-preservation. And in, in the context of the modern human being, that typically happens at a level of you know, status preservation rather than basic survival. S surviving life, yeah. yeah. Um, and under psychedelics, as the, that self-preservation principle uh, loosens and, 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 you, and you, you, you start to see something that you weren't aware of, um, you start to see that uh, that actually you're anxious about your self-preservation all the time. I mean, I remember this uh, uh, when I first started university. One of these old, grey-haired uh, academics spoke to me. And Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. In the first week of my university course, one of these, you know, the last of the dying breed of academics before, uh, you know, the whole thing got corporate. And uh, he, he, he said in this big lecture theater, raise your hand if you think all of life is suffering. And nobody pretty much raised their hand. We're 18, 19-year-olds, you know, and I didn't raise my hand. And he said, well, that's, you know, the, the first tenet of Buddhism, all yeah. life is suffering. And when you, when you feel your, you know, the, 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 the sense of yourself identity preservation principles start to come undone and you feel, uh, you can see what that is, you realize, ah, there's, there's anxiety there all the time. And, so, and, and that constrains your perception of everything around So you. are you saying that some of the psychedelic experiences within clinical trials are, are tying up almost with Buddhist tenets? Because an, another yeah. one is uh, <clears throat> that we're in a continual state of ignoring the fact that we're going to die. And that anxiety yeah. is, is, is because... We, we know we're going to die, yeah. but we don't acknowledge it at any point during our days. I mean, yeah. a part of Buddhism is to truly accept and know that yeah. your physical life is finished. Yeah. 
It's, it's a great point, and it's actually totally relevant to psychedelics. Some people think about the psychedelic encounter as a dress rehearsal of death, and that's one of the reasons why it may be very helpful for people who are dying, because they break on through to the other side, and it, it's all right. Um, but there, there is this... A dress rehearsal for death. Yeah. How that about sounds it? like <laughs> if Jim Morrison didn't die, that would be the name of the Doors' <laughs> the next, next album. <laughs> that's right. Um, but, you know, uh, this, is, this is what you're speaking about is relevant to another core feature of the psychedelic experience that I think uh, makes a lot of sense for, for clinical outcomes, and that is that um, we know that ideas and thoughts, certain kinds of information, don't really change a lot of our behavior and our attitudes. It's very, you know, we all know we're going to die. But it doesn't, you don't live your life as though that were true. But yeah. if you were to walk out here tonight and get hit by a tram and be in a coma for the next six months and then miraculously survive and you had your near-death experience, there's every chance your life would be irrevocably changed yes. on account of having that genuine encounter. Yes. And, and psychedelics provide you with knowledge that isn't you know, just cognitive linguistic. A lot of people uh, feel like they learn something, but they can't articulate a new bit of you know, information. They just got that knowledge by acquaintance. It's what philosophers call knowledge by acquaintance. You actually felt it. You were there. Lived it was embodied. Experience. And that produces a lot of change in people's lives. So, you know, all the smokers on, there was a recent trial where people that had attempted to quit smoking for many, many years and had failed were, went on a psilocybin trial and 80% of them were quit by six months, which is phenomenal. I mean, the next best treatment gets you about 25% quit rates at six months. And, and those people, every one of them always knew that they were going to die from smoking the, at, at the rate they were. It wasn't new information. It wasn't like, ah, oh, yeah, it's bad for me. It's a, it's a sense of proximity to your values in life and, and, and a different way of living. So if, if, so they had the cognitive information that if you smoke, you will die. What's the name for what you're describing? Is it, is it empathy with the experience? Is it, is it more than that? We're going to have to work on this together, and if the ineffable, it's... it's, it's uh, Words it, don't really exist yeah, it's, for this shit. It's, it's, it's emotional, it's bodily, uh, and it's just this encounter that is, uh, you know, hard to, to push aside. And one of the interesting... And how, why, why mystical? Why was mystical chosen as the word? Yeah, it's probably the wrong word, you know, in, in, in the current context. But uh, it, it was chosen because it comes out of uh, an old tradition that William James, the, the kind of grandfather of modern psychology, formulated where he was interested in religious experience and he found out that there were these six components to religious experience wherever you find them. There's noetic quality where there's information imparted and this knowledge by acquaintance, this ineffability, the non-dual experience, there were all these components. And so they, they were tapping something that was in the, in the literature tradition. Um, but one of, one of the things that, that is interesting about these experiences uh, where you have this encounter, and even if, if you don't have uh, you know, an intense informational uh, download, the, the um, psychedelic experience uh, has a lot of uh, what, we, what we call a, a verisimilitude. <laughs> I know you like your technical terms. Um, so verisimilitude is just a, is just a jargonistic word for uh, something that resembles reality. And so the, the interesting thing about psychedelics is unlike... Is, a, is a dream like that? No, well, a dream, no, a dream is dreamy. But a and dream so, resembles reality. In some way. No, but what I'm referring to is that with psychedelics, a lot of people report something that feels like they've woken up out of the dream of their lives. So their normal wow. sober state is more dreamlike and the psychedelic state is a better representation of reality. 
They're more sober than they ever were. And it's more reliable. And what's interesting is, unlike with many drug experiences where after the fact, you just put that down to, oh, that was a drug experience. You know, you get stoned, you write a great poem, you think it's, it's the best thing you've ever done, and then the next day, uh, nah. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, so with psychedelics, it's not like that. You have this uh, different orientation to your life or your family or your principles or yourself or some new embodied encounter with something important, and it has an enduring authority over time. You know, a year later, it has weight in your life. And, and from a recreational perspective, it's true. Like, I mean, a body, a body of mine did ayahuasca and moved to Brazil and started teaching children. Right. But seriously, right. like, it, it's, psychedelics are the yeah. only ones whereby people change their lives afterwards mm. and they don't speak about it as if I had a mad night. Mm. It's like, no, this heightened my senses. It woke me up to certain things. Yeah. Which, I don't know, I've always had a skepticism around it. I always felt that the person knew it anyway and needed this. But it's, your research and information then is going to stop people being skeptic, uh, skeptics about it. To some degree, and then also there are things we need to be somewhat skeptical of and, and we'll see what comes out in, in, in the wash. But absolutely, there, there are these ways in which that psychedelic experience, as I say, do, doesn't necessarily impart new information in the typical sense of the word, but it imparts the kind of embodied felt sense that is everything for living so a life differently. In, in a simple way, could you try and explain, like... How does psilocybin benefit a person with depression? Like, what is depression, and how would psilocybin, which is the chemical in magic mushrooms, how, how, why is that working for people? There are so many uh, ways to answer that. One, one of the simple ways that I think about it is that, you know, our, our diagnostic uh, categories, these terms like depression, are, are in, you know, of course, arbitrary in many ways. Yeah. And, and they're symptomatically defined, you know, by definition. It's a, you know, m mental health is a bizarre uh, branch of medicine. I mean, it, you know, it's kind of out of place. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, when you hold it up against other branches of medicine over the last 50 years, it's made very little progress. And my sense is that's in large part on account of some false assumptions. And, yeah. and, and one instantiation of that is the diagnostic uh, criteria around these yeah. things, why we call them what they are and, and, and that we focus on symptoms. My sense is that depression is not primarily a mood issue. It's a, a, an issue to, primarily to do with extreme isolation. And I mean that in like a, a, a fundamental way that, that, that the, the term doesn't uh, lend itself to. That people in, who are deeply depressed are um, disconnected, not only from obviously the world around them and their friends and whatever, but they're disconnected from themselves and from mm -hmm. time mm -hmm. and from experience. And it's... it's um, it's, uh, they're disconnected from the possibility of anything else, and that's what predicts suicide, this hopelessness, that, that actually this is forever. Uh, there's no mm -hmm. way out of this. Mm -hmm. um, and what's, one of the things that psychedelics do, one of the many things that they do, is that they increase a sense of connection with yourself, with your uh, experience, with time, with the, the world around you, with other people. Um, there is a way in which you feel... Um, drawn to uh, everything as though it were new. There's a sense of newness. Uh, people often describe a childlike awareness where, you know, once you, you looked at that as just a water bottle and all that really happened in your head was 
I ticked the, the, the concept water bottle. Yeah. And now I'm actually looking at a water bottle for the yeah. first time. And, uh, and, and like a child, and it's kind of engaging and, and, and phenomenal, and you're full of curiosity. And, and when you engage with your experience in that way, it's meaningful. That's, that's kind of like the definition of meaningfulness. And depression is, is the definition of meaninglessness. So like, I'm trying to, uh, another question I asked you backstage, right, was, and I think I'm kind of getting my head around it now. So I asked you, are pharmaceutical companies looking at this? And you said, <clears throat> not necessarily. It, it doesn't fit within mm. what we understand drugs to be. Yeah. As in, so the person with depression, so let's just say you take one person with depression and you give them antidepressants. That's a person who's taking a drug every single day to change their mood. But the person who's taking psilocybin is not necessarily taking the drug continually. Rather, they're having an experience, and from that experience, the change within themselves comes from. That's right, and that, that's one of the reasons why it doesn't fit the big pharma model. I mean, we were talking about this before. You don't take psychedelics regularly. It's not a take two and call me in the morning. You know, it's not that kind of thing. You have to come into a clinical setting with a lot of psychotherapeutic support, and that costs money. You know, it's very cheap to dole out drugs. It's expensive to have that kind of facility and service. But also, it's a short program. You don't just keep doing it. And it seems to work, which is also not in the interest of Big Pharma. So. <laughs> Fucking hell. <laughs> so do you, like, it's so new. In five years, if you had a vision of, of, of in five years' time, where this is now, legislation comes in, and this is now accepted, normal, and publicly available. Would this be called psychotherapy? Is it, like, what does that look like in an ideal world? Yeah, I mean, nobody knows what it will really look like. Uh, my, my sense is a lot of people in the field think about it as an adjunct to psychotherapy. So, you, you know, we, we never separate the two. Uh, you don't get reliable clinical outcomes just by consuming these compounds. It, it's not yeah. the case. And, and, and the safety profile in a clinical context is, is, is excellent, whereas in the wild, it's not. There, there are risks and, and they happen. Um, so it's a, it's a psychotherapy adjunct that, in my mind, that's the way it'll happen. Um, and initially, it'll happen probably in, uh, unfortunately, probably quite expensive clinical environments. Yeah. Uh, until government come on board to fund it, it's going to be, you know, one for the rich people, yeah. uh, which is a real shame. But hopefully government comes on board to Elon fund Musk. it. Elon Musk. It'll be fucking Elon Musk. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> on his own. Yeah. <laughs> getting loads of free mushrooms. Right. That's right. Um, so if, if the evidence shows us, you know, that if the phase three data comes through and it looks like this stuff is really effective and safe enough uh, and, and it's rolled out and, and the drugs are registered, then you'll have uh, probably these short term programs, and nobody knows, uh, you know, you've got these kind of 12-week or 15-week clinical programs in the, in the experimental setting, that'll probably just be translated into service provision, but nobody knows how to sustain the change. You know, you get some great sustained outcomes in some individuals, and then you get relapse in others. Yeah. And, um, and, and this is, the, this is the, to my mind, the key, the key challenge, is how do you move into the rest of your life? So, one, one thing I'd like to ask as well is, so within psychotherapy, uh, the therapist will find uh, an approach that, su that uniquely suits the client, okay? So that means the therapist would be using an integrative approach. So 
bit of CBT, a bit of transaction analysis, whatever. Are ye looking at psychedelics and how they react to specific pre-existing forms of talk therapy? Like, are you going, how does psilocybin work alongside CBT today? Is, yeah. is that something you're looking into? Yeah, so uh, that's a great question. That's exactly where I think we need to be at right now. This is starting to happen. So, so far it's been a bit... Uh, the, the field has been a bit um, hodgepodge, you know, it's all starting in organic ways and every group is kind of separate and, and doing their own thing. We know that there are some key important things to hit when you do the psychotherapeutic support around psychedelics. You know, there are some key things to get right that are psychedelic specific. And then different groups have got different um, uh, schools of psychotherapy that they bring into the mix that align in various ways. They take some of it, they leave some of it. So different groups are using different kinds of psychotherapies. And this is exactly, I think, where we're at now, where we need to take evidence-based psychotherapies for certain mental uh, indications and see what we can use in combination with psychedelics and, and, and test them out. But it's so early days now, and, and in, in many ways, um, we provide quite a minimal psychedelic container compared to what you could do in the future. And also as well, so if we take something like cognitive behavioral therapy as an example, right, that requires... So if, for cognitive behavioral therapy to work, a person will say would, uh, their anxiety or depression is because they have rational or faulty beliefs mm. about themselves or the world, right? That means the person needs to be able to know what rationality is. Mm. How do you do that when the walls are melting? <laughs> but you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. And, and, and a lot of psychotherapy is based on Western empiricism of evidence-based stuff. And what is evidence when you're tripping balls? Really, mm. uh, honest question. Yeah, well, again, there is this interesting report that comes out often of uh, verisimilitude, the sense that uh, while the walls might be bending, actually what you're experiencing is something more reliable than, than your sobriety. Um, but so, so in some ways there's a reality check that is happening analogous to CBT, but I would suggest at a different level of processing. So CBT addresses uh, some maladaptive thinking styles. Yeah. You know, if you're black and white thinking or you catastrophize or whatever, there's a, you can talk yourself out of some of those thinking styles. But, you know, for some people, that is all you need. And maybe that's all the yeah. issue was. You just had a, a, a way in which you got wound up in your thoughts, but underneath that, you were all right. And maybe, maybe that was your case. You seem yeah. to use CBT to very good end. And yeah. but, but you've also been highly motivated to use it. You, you were telling me you use CBT every day. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's incredible. That tells me something else is happening too. Um, yeah. But uh, in the case of, uh, of a psychedelic experience, it's often to do with... Uh, more um, shifts in, in, in what you value in life and in your perspective on things and your ability to see things from, from other angles. Your, your, your empathy goes up, compassion goes up. Self-compassion is really a, a very common yeah. uh, report as well. Um, and, and, and your priorities change. And I think that's often what can, what can drive the change. In, you know, depression, you know, is is a high, it, well, people often think about it as being incredibly passive. It's a, it's a highly active, exhausting state mm -hmm. to be in. Mm -hmm. You are highly motivated, typically, to ruminate about uh, all the ways in which you are inadequate, mm -hmm. or all the ways in which the world is inadequate. And, and you constantly uh, are involved in that. With psychedelics, you can 
people report just having a very different perspective and a very different set of priorities on life, such that all the things that they were focused on and ruminating about are just not so relevant anymore. Can you tell me about how you're using these treatments for people with addiction? How does that work? Again, we, in some ways we don't know uh, how it works and in other ways there, there are these, these interesting ideas here. Ultimately, my sense is uh, that, you know, I, one of the ways in which people are uh, skeptical about this is it looks like this new juju's that seems to work for your everything, you know, and hey, yeah. that doesn't like, sound very possible. They used to prescribe people heroin to get them off cocaine. Right, <laughs> right, exactly. But, you know, people raise an eyebrow, you know, when I'm giving a talk and, and I've gone on to my, like, fourth indication. You know, okay, there's depression, there's anxiety, yeah. now it's working for you. Is it a, a now, wonder drug, snake yeah, oil? come on, this yeah. doesn't sound right. Well, you, you know, we'll see in time what it really is good for, and it won't be good for everything. But to my mind, this just points a very clear spotlight on the, um, the fallacy of the diagnostic boundaries, that there are more fundamental ways in which we suffer and they're born out in different ways on the surface. And ultimately, uh, you know, the human condition is, is not easily parceled out into 305 different mental illnesses. Yeah. We, we, we suffer in very similar ways and, and express it in different ways. To keep ways. it really simple in case people don't know, can you explain to people what the diagnostic uh, statistics manual is and why it's uh, so important? Right. So this is a, the DSM, the Diagnostic Statistic Manual, is in some ways the bible of uh, mental, mental health uh, research and treatment, but within the field, um, there is a huge amount of uh, skepticism and caution around its use. It was originally devised to standardize communication between doctors. You know, yeah. I can say that, you know, my client who is experiencing a particular thing is kind of similar to your client, and we needed yes. a language and a rating scale to say, we've got the same thing, I can learn from your treatment. It's, it's and a checklist. Exactly. It's exactly. But the, the, we, we've taken these invented terms and the invented kind of criteria that, that make them up. So this idea of depression consists in these various criteria, and we've we've now um, converted that into. Uh, we, we, we now think of that as something that is real and in the world and always was here. Of course, I, the experience like is real. It's like treating the but mind like like physical symptoms. Right. If you know, if, if, if I have the symptoms of a cold, chances yeah. are I have a cold. Yeah. But it's not the same when it comes to emotional things. Yeah, and even if you do have the, the symptoms of a cold, you may not have a cold. I mean, you've got this, if you have red cheeks, you know, you could have a cold, you could have been slapped in the face, you could, yeah. you could be puffed out. You know, there, there are lots of causes. And medicine works by, by searching for the causes and attempting to address them in uh, mental illness, not at all. We, we don't even have a manual of causes. There's not been a single biological, uh, reliable biological marker of these mental illnesses that can distinguish between any other mental illness. So they're artificially constructed, and you know, to be clear, the experience of depression, whatever that is, is very real. It's not to say that we've invented the experience. The, that kind of distress has existed and continues to exist. The Categories that the, the categories that we uh, overlay and the names that we overlay have been invented, and and that's problematic in many ways. Because in our research trials, for example, you know, I get I recruit depressed people, but actually, I might have a whole range of different issues in that room. Whereas there may be more in common between 
uh, one depressed patient and an addicted patient than two depressed patients. Their underlying issues may be, may be more in common. And I think ultimately, if you drill deeper, you do find very common fundamental uh, causes of human distress and possibly psychedelics are working at a, at a more fundamental level and that's why you see all these um, you know, blips on the radar across different indications. How, so when it comes to something like psychosis, so a person is hearing and seeing things that aren't physically present, yeah. are you looking at the use of psychedelics? Because that's for me is like, when you take a psychedelic, is it fair to call that a form of psychosis? When so you're on the money. Um, and, and so firstly, you know, psychosis is not uh, something that we would use psychedelics for. It's, it's really strongly contraindicated. So anyone who's got psychosis or a first-degree relative with psychosis, or even in some studies, a second-degree relative with psychosis, they're not allowed into this. They're not study. allowed into it. Wow. Okay. Um, the, you know, there, there were all these reports that came out of Nixon's propaganda campaign about you know, crazy stuff that would happen if you take LSD. Um, and some crazy stuff did happen, you know, yeah. uh, you know, people staring into the sun until they go blind or thinking they can fly. And, you know. But in all the cases that were actually investigated where people did these kinds of things, they could trace it to uh, risk factors for psychosis. So the, 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 there was a history there or a family connection. And psychosis is, is quite heritable among all the mental illnesses. It's one of the most heritable. It runs in families. Um, so... You wouldn't, you wouldn't use psychedelics to treat psychosis. Psych psychedelics, in fact, were used to study psychosis. They were considered uh, a way of artificially inducing psychosis in the lab because there is a lot in common between a psychedelic trip in some situations and, and psychosis, absolutely. And it was used to train uh, mental health workers who worked with psychotic patients to give them more empathy to mm -hmm. see what it was like, to redesign buildings because some, some of these old... Psychosis hospitals freaked out the patients, and when you take a, an acid trip and you walk down that corridor, you realise why. You know, it like never ends, or something's happening. Um, so, yeah. So, you know, they called them psychotomimetics. They mimicked psychosis, and that was their, one of their original uses in research. Um, but, but in many ways, uh, you know, they're quite distinct. One of the questions I was asked online, and I don't know, is this too conspiracy theory-ish? Um, have you heard of the MK Ultra program? Yeah. Is it real, and did anything of benefit kind of come from it? <laughs> and and uh, what, what is the MK Ultra program yeah. for anyone? So the MK know? Ultra program was definitely real, absolutely. So the, you know, as is always the case, when something exciting and powerful enters, you know, the zeitgeist, the CIA have a crack at it, and. Um, <laughs> And so, you know, psychedelics came on the scene through the through the 40s. You know, they, they, you know, they were really um, um, used a lot through the 50s. And, and in the 50s, the, the CIA attempted to use psychedelics to a range of different ends. And they experimented in all kinds of ways. At first, they thought um, they could use it as a... Um, as a truth serum, yeah. but, uh, the, but the people under LSD just seemed to speak gobbledygook and, and nothing came of it. And then they thought they could use it actually to make their soldiers, uh, you know, perform better on the battlefield, but the soldiers didn't want to fight anymore. They were when claiming they trees. Yeah. Um, so that didn't work. And, and then actually the only thing that really came of it was they used it as a torture device, and that worked. Wow. Uh, so high-dose psychedelics... Uh, and do we have evidence of the people that were tortured by the CIA with LSD or did they disappear? Like yeah. I know uh, Philip K. Dick, yeah. 
who wrote Blade Runner and uh, A Scanner Darkly and loads of massive science fiction, he claims that he is somebody who was kidnapped by the CIA oh, really? and put through that program and it left him with a paranoia and psychosis for the rest of his life. Wow. Yeah, uh, I, I wouldn't be surprised, but um, uh, and maybe a bit of, uh, you know, the byproduct there was some creativity because um, he did some good stuff. Ridiculously but, um, creative, yeah. 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 Um, but, yeah, I, I don't know of any reports from people that, uh, that were abused in that program, but there were definitely people abused. There's certainly dossiers and documents on that. They yeah. used to use... Uh, they used to get uh, sex workers... And what they would do is use sex workers to compromise businessmen particularly and basically catch the businessman who would have a family and something to lose and then this is the person who would be put on a psychedelic trial or torture. Oh, wow. That's what I heard, yeah. Interesting. Who, uh, who knows? I don't know. I wouldn't put it past them. But, uh, yeah, it was, it was a program that went on for a while and then they kind of gave it up. Um, uh, Ultimately, it didn't do it. Didn't do much of what they wanted to do, and in the end, it really it spilled out of the lab and out of MK Ultra into the public and became, you know, public enemy number one with the anti-war movement. Um, what are your views on on microdosing versus the larger doses? And, and microdosing mushrooms for depression is something that I've been hearing about a lot recently as well. What, what, what's yeah. What are your opinions on it? This one's interesting. So microdosing is completely unlike macrodosing. Uh, the, you know, a microdose is usually about one twentieth or one tenth of a of a, a normal recreational dose, and the kind of dose that is used in these clinical trials. Typically, you barely perceive any effects. If you do, it's very subtle. There's no uh, impairment to functionality in any way. And and um, what's fascinating is that microdosing has just grown in popularity to an astronomical level mm -hmm. with almost no science. Um, so uh, Jim Fadiman published his um, Psychedelic Explorer's Guide in 2011. That was the first time, really, that, psychedelic, uh, that microdosing entered the, the psyche of, 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 the, of the Western world. And then, uh, really, no, not many people read that book, but in 2015, a Rolling Stones article really brought it in, in into the world. And from the last five years, it's only five years, it's just boomed. Yeah. And yet the very first placebo-controlled microdosing study just happened last year. So uh, there, there are, we're, doing a, we're writing a, um, a review on microdosing studies right now, and I'm looking at all this research. Um, there are only about 10 reasonable scientific studies that have been done on microdosing. Uh, one of them by my colleague who I'm working with now in, at Macquarie, Vince Polito. And, um, yeah, the, the science is, is trying to catch up with this phenomenon, but people are microdosing a lot and claiming all kinds of things. And, yeah. and you know, you can go to the, Reddit, the subreddits with, you know, 40,000 members and, and, and the claims are wild. But, you know, the, the plural of anecdote is not data. So there's a distinction there uh, that we have to make and we have to run these through proper trials. But... If it works for somebody, regardless of how it's working, even if it's placebo, um, then great. Um, but, but we don't know yet. Because you said an interesting thing to me backstage about placebo. You said that uh, Prozac was more effective at the start. Yeah, so the placebo effect is sensitive to the novelty of the compound. So in 86, when Prozac was released, the, the, the late 80s, uh, um, Prozac was more um, effective than it is today because of that. And so with psychedelics as well, it's, it's important to say there is an enormous amount of hype about psychedelics. Yeah. And, and people will, uh, 
It's the type of thing someone wants to believe will work. Totally, yeah. And, and, and there's, a, there's all kinds of biases as well. Like, there are things that are hard to scale, like the therapists and, and clinicians working on the trials dedicate their lives to this in, in a way that you're not going to scale easily. People self-select and travel across the world to be a participant in these trials. Um, and, there's, and there's an enormous expectancy effect, uh, which will come out in the wash, I, I suspect. But I think there's enough of a signal there to survive you know, whatever decrement we see over the next five or ten years, which I, I'm sure we'll see. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, I'm going to open things up to the audience now for some questions. Who has a question? It doesn't have to be about acid. It can be about anything or mushrooms. <laughs> can we bring the house lights up slightly, actually? Uh, is that possible? There we go. Um, Postman. This gentleman. We've got Brendan. Brendan the Usher. Uh, I have a question for uh, Jonathan. Thanks. Um, <laughs> are you looking for volunteers? Uh, no, a genuine, a genuine question. Is it a prerequisite for one of the psychotherapists to have a psychedelic experience? Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Experience ...before entering your studies. Did, did you ask if, if a therapist needs to have a psychedelic experience? Great question. So... There is the, the leading organization in the world who's running psychedelic studies, MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies, has exactly that. They've got an open-label, healthy controlled trial for their therapists to go under into an MDMA experience and experience it themselves. I actually just got the data from those therapists uh, um, about two weeks ago showing that it was an incredibly beneficial experience for them. And also, you know, anxiety is, a, is, is something that needs to be managed uh, you know, in a very important way when you go into these psychedelic experiences. And these therapists who went through this um, MDMA experience themselves reported in, in, the, in the data that I was looking at that so many of their clients asked them before they went into the trip session, have you done it? And that was important for them to know that they were with a therapist who, who knew yeah. the terrain and could hold their hand and knew what they were going through. And so being able to have a legal psychedelic experience and also within that kind of clinical context was incredibly important for um, the safety and effectiveness of, of the trial. So that, I think that is an excellent idea. There are certain subjective components to the experience that, uh, as, we've, as we've tried to describe, are hard to describe. And, um, and I think it's an incredibly useful process for a therapist to go through, but as yet we don't have a trial like that up in Australia. Hopefully we can get one up. A quick one for you. So one of the kind of tenets of psychotalk therapy... Is, is that a therapist would have what Carl Rogers called the core conditions, right? Mm. Empathy, uh, congruence, non -con uh, unconditional positive regard. Mm. How does that, does that tie in with the, the therapist taking the drug themselves? That it has to be truthful and to, tr to, to have true empathy for the person who's taking psilocybin. Yeah. They must know what their experience is like yeah. rather than guessing. Is it, would, yeah. What would Carl Rogers say about it? Yeah, I think, I think that's right. I think um, it, it is very important in terms of empathy, but also 
it's, um, the psychedelic encounter often entails a, a kind of vulnerability that you can't explain and you can't uh, transmit in any other way than experience. And so um, empathy uh, will be limited. You'll still be attempting to be empathetic yeah. if you've never been there before, but th it'll be limited in its quality and your ability to kind of hold that space if, if, you've, never, uh, probably yeah. if you've never been there yourself. So... I think I think it relates to all the uh, you know, core tenets of good psychotherapy. It's just a, a slightly special condition. Uh, any other questions? <laughs> it's not the fucking late late show, man. <laughs> this uh, woman there on, on the edge. Hello, how are you doing? Um, how are you? What's the crack? Blind boy, just like to say thank you. I had my first psilocybin experience. Um, when I was listening to your CBT podcast, it was on episode two and absolutely changed my life. So um, thank, thank you very, you very much, much for that. Um, Jonathan, I have a question for you. Um, <laughs> you see what you've done? <laughs> You're going to have to tweet out my real hand. I will, man, don't worry. <laughs> have you done much research into ketamine psychotherapy and the use of ketamine? Oh, uh, yeah. You. Ketamine. Um, ketamine's been used for PTSD, isn't it? No, um, ketamine's, <laughs> ketamine's mainly used for depression. Um, so ketamine is, is interesting. It's not a classical psychedelic. It is in the class hallucinogen. It's called a dissociative. It's got uh, some very different characteristics to the classical psychedelics. Um, it seems to be most effective as an anti-suicide drug in the short term. And, um, and it's used to treat depression in the short term. Um, its abuse potential is much higher than the classical psychedelics. It's much more dangerous for yeah. your body. Um, and the research is, is coming in now. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's had a very different historic trajectory. Ketamine is uh, a general anesthetic. And in some countries, it's the, it's the general anesthetic of choice. In other countries, it's used where the normal drugs are contraindicated. And so ketamine has sat in hospital fridges over the last 40 years of, of prohibition of psychedelics. It's, it's, it's a legal compound. And so the use of ketamine to treat depression has run well ahead of the research. It's used, uh, as they call, off-label, where psychiatrists who have ketamine in their fridge are now dispensing it for depressed people wow. without the research to, to, to back it up. But the research is trying to catch up now uh, and, and getting How there. How is that allowed? You can, you can use, uh, yeah, exactly, and you know, this, is, this is this issue where you have um, you know, these, these legal, illegal boundaries between things that we think of as right and wrong, where, and we lose the ability to think about things more clearly yeah. uh, in terms of how it's used. Well, if you but, think about it, a doctor, if I have a bad enough pain in my back, yeah. a doctor can give me heroin. Yeah, that's right, that's right. And, and in most cases, ketamine has been dispensed off-label in, in pretty safe ways and, and, and to good effect. Um, the, you know, the, the trials, unfortunately, and I, I talk with some of the people that are doing the trials here in Australia on ketamine, there's a couple up, um, they unfortunately haven't um, looked into the psychedelic literature uh, well enough and taken a leaf out of that book because, the, you know, 
30 years of psychedelic work has shown us a lot of how to get this technology right in terms of set and setting and cast and the whole approach. And yet ketamine is dispensed in these trials and in, 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 in hospital settings without any regard for preparation, set, setting. So, you know, they just mainline the stuff into somebody in a neon-lit room with two research assistants yeah. taking notes and watching them, and they have the most monumental experience of their life, and uh, you know, the, the adverse reactions are much higher than they need to be. Um, but that's an aside. So I think we can get this right. So research isn't being done properly? I think in some cases it's not done as well as it could be, yeah, uh, because, it, you know, part of what it carries with it is the, psychi uh, the, um, the psychiatric model uh, or, the, yeah. or, or the chemotherapeutic model, which is that all that we're doing here is providing a molecule to the brain. We're unlocking something in the brain. It's just a lock and key system, disregarding the fact that um, certain kinds of experiences matter a lot for mental health outcomes. And, um, and some of these experiences can be genuinely traumatic. I mean, if you take high-dose psychedelics or high-dose ketamine, you can have a genuinely yeah. traumatic experience that you will spend the rest of your life trying to recover from. But it's, yeah, I said backstage, I know somebody who took, do you know that stuff, salvia? Yeah. So salvia used to use, you have to buy it in shops, and you smoke it, and it'll make you very high for 15 minutes. And it specifically fucks with your perception of time. And I know someone who did a salvia trip, it lasted 10 minutes, they perceived that 10 minutes to be an actual year, and to this day, they feel like a fucking year of their life was gone. Yeah, there's a to missing this, year. Yeah, and it's that's, tough. you were speaking to me about the, we'll say DMT and salvia, they act very rapidly and very quickly and for a very short amount of time, and, and why is that not good? Well, you know, it, it, it it could work, and we, the research you know, is just beginning with these more fast-acting substances. There is a motivation to use a more fast-acting substance and not have the eight-hour session. Uh, I, I prefer the eight-hour session, to be honest, because it's therapeutically dense and efficient, mm -hmm. and, and you get a lot of bang for buck. It's, a, it's intensive workload for everybody involved, but uh, I think it'll bear out in the longer term. Mm -hmm. uh, but people are looking into these shorter-acting compounds like DMT and 5-MeO-DMT, you know, the yeah. smoked venom of the Sonorian toad. Yes. Um, a friend of mine of got the yeah. toad venom when they asked for DMT and they, yeah. they had a That's, deeply bad experience. That's whopping, yeah. yeah. Um, but so one of the tricky things is that it's very hard to provide the same psychotherapeutic container around a trip that has an onset duration of 10 seconds yeah. And takes you into the stratosphere where, you, you know, you, you, you're not even a human entity or anything mm -hmm. like it, and you can't kind of process any of the things you've learned in your preparation, and then drops you down half an hour later also mm -hmm. in about 10 seconds. Uh, it's very hard to find ways to prepare people for that being a positive trip and to then bring them back into the rest of their lives and integrate And contrast that now with an ayahuasca experience, which is the same drug, it's still DMT. What's the difference there? Yeah, so ayahuasca is... DMT combined with another substance called monoamine oxidase inhibitor that you consume into your gut and it's metabolized much more slowly and it's not, it, the onset is, it's similar to psilocybin, onset is half an hour to an hour, peak after two hours, peak of the trip is about four hours long and you're sober again maybe eight hours later. So it's a much slower trajectory and... Um, and but, but how... How did they know? So if w this is happening in, in the rainforest, it's thousands and thousands of years old. Yeah. You chew the, uh, the DMT leaf yeah. and it does nothing. It does nothing. Your, your gut metabolizes it. So this is the phenomenal thing that in an Amazon basin with many thousands of different plant species, 
you have to consume exactly two and exactly the right two in order for you to have a psychedelic effect. You need the DMT um, and you need a monoamine oxidase inhibitor. And that's what they've done in the Amazon. They combine these two plants into a brew, drink it, and um, God knows how... figured that out a God long time how, ago. Yeah, uh, it's like when you get stung by a nettle and then you find a dock leaf. Yeah. <laughs> but they grow alongside each other. <laughs> that's right. Any other questions? I'm trying to judge people's heads and go, who's got an interesting question? <laughs> Not him picking his nose anyway. Uh, this gentleman here who's wearing the wristband. I guess a man with a leather wristband has got something to say. And glasses. That's a lot of pressure. Um, the, um, yeah, my question's for Jonathan. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Bow Club. Although I was a bigger Paul fan, but that's okay. Um, the, um, could you talk a little bit about your research and with, with psychedelics but, and how that sort of fits in, I guess, with current, uh, what we might, for want of a better word, legal... Uh, pharmaceutical yeah. uh, treatment for depression, so things like what we call antidepressants or SSRIs. That, that sort of, you know, how does that sort of fit in with your research? You, like, uh, do you see psychedelics potentially replacing these or working together? I, I'll just speak a bit more about that, I guess. Yeah, yeah. thanks. Um, so to be clear, SSRIs and, and, and other antidepressants are very helpful for some people. You know, they, they seem to work quite well uh, for about half of people who, t who stick at them f uh, for a while. So half of them, half people don't respond well. And of course it doesn't address anything like a cause. And relap relapse rates are up at about 80% when people come off their antidepressants. Um, so th there is a place for SSRIs. And, and in many cases, the case that has been made for psychedelics, I think it's wider than this, but the case so far that's been made for psychedelics are those 50% of people who don't find adequate response in any other treatment. And so it may be the case that antidepressants work for some people and psychedelics work for others and the populations are a bit distinct or the indications are a bit distinct. I imagine there will be a lot of overlap. Um, but they work at such different levels and in some ways they work in opposition to each other. So if you want to be on a trial, a psychedelic trial for depression, you will have to come off your antidepressants first because they, they, it's not a safety contraindication, it's an effectiveness contraindication. It'll, it'll actually reduce the effects. Uh, antidepressants in many ways seem to do something that looks about the opposite to what psychedelics do. And, and there's an interesting study that has been published on exactly this. Um, Antidepressants obviously clip the, the, the lows of mood, but they also clip the highs of mood, and they often uh, save people's lives and bring them into just some sort of functionality that, that allows them to, to move on. My sense of antidepressants are that they are a temporary treatment and, and, uh, and a wonderful one for many people, but, but they're considered permanent. There's no, there's no getting off them uh, you know, in, in, the, in, the, in the treatment plan, typically. Um, so antidepressants typically kind of dull people in some way, and, and not everybody's like this, but uh, they, can, they can really uh, um, make, make life uh, tolerable, but still not necessarily exciting or engaging, whereas psychedelics seem to just take you right into the belly of the beast. It's not about clipping the, the low end of your mood and, and, and struggling to a less degree, it's about taking you right into the heart of where that low mood comes from. And psychedelic experiences are incredibly challenging in a lot of these trials, as I mentioned before. Um, but what happens when you go through the other side is that it isn't just about modifying your mood, it's about uh, 
shifting your perspective on reality and your priorities and your values. So I, I don't see a very good way for those two things to cohabit a single body, but, uh, but I think there are ways in which antidepressants might get somebody into a situation where they can now face psychotherapy and psychedelics. Um, <clears throat> Paul, would... <laughs> um, would a person need psychedelic treatment if an entire room tried to convince them that their name was Jonathan? <laughs> <laughs> I'm beginning to think so. <laughs> <clears throat> um, I'm going to take one last question now. These three ladies in the middle, which one are you though? The one with the glasses. Um, hi, thank you. Sorry, Jonathan. I'm not actually going to talk to you. Um, <laughs> just because of the nature of the question that I'm going to ask and because this was something that wasn't done at the start, I'd just like to say that we are on Wurundjeri land and I'd like to acknowledge that. Um, this always was and always will be Aboriginal land and sovereignty was never ceded. Um, I wanted to ask you, blind boy, how... Hold on two seconds. Is that, are you talking about the, the indigenous ritual that some... Yeah. Okay. So something that often, even if people aren't necessarily in a place to welcome someone to their country, they acknowledge the land that they're on. Okay. And um, it's something that, I don't know, it's often a thing that's done at the start of ceremonies as a, a white sort of way to say, oh, I'm a bit sorry, but action doesn't necessarily come from that. I, um, I didn't know what that was because apparently it was supposed to happen on this tour, but I, I, did, I didn't know about it. Yeah. So in, where was it? In part. No, no, no. In Brisbane, an indigenous person came up at the start and did that. And I didn't know what it was. I wasn't sure what was going on. It was the first time I'd seen it. But uh, welcome to country. Yes. Yes, So that's, yes. that's what someone who's of the land does. And then if someone who isn't of the land, they often acknowledge the country. Okay, acknowledge yeah. the country, yeah. that is. Okay, I, I'm just learning about that this tour, but thank you for that. What's your question? I, my question was, and I suppose you've sort of half answered it already, is how you're finding being on, um, or in a place that is a colonized place, and how you're finding that in weird terms of your fuck. experience. Really fucking weird. Re yeah. Honestly, really, really weird, because... Um, Today, I visited the Melbourne Museum, and I was there, I went into the, the first people's section of it, and I was just trying to process it, and it just, it felt weird as fuck, and, and what it really felt was, so I was in this exhibition, and it's all about learning about the indigenous people, and it's trying to show respect for the indigenous people, and it's curated by indigenous people. But in my heart, I was just going, it's just performative. Do you know? I mean, it's, I'm, it's lovely and all of this, but in my heart, I'm going, that's not reparations. Like having a museum that says, it used to be like this, and trying, that, that didn't feel like reparations to me. So I, I don't know, it feels fucking weird, and it, 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 it felt dark, and it felt sad. That's all I can say, and, and it's a new complex thing. I don't know because I'm fucking Irish. And, but one thing I will say is I've learned recently uh, only on this tour about 
the problem that's happening in Australia with p- police brutality towards indigenous people, I had no fucking clue. I had to learn that here, talking to a guest of mine who works with indigenous people. And I was shocked that in 2020, where I have the fucking internet, that I'm not learning about a huge problem with police brutality towards indigenous people. And what I said to my audience was, like, first off, the, the, the Irish history in Australia, is, it, it's fractured and strange. Irish were mostly brought here as penal colony. Then there was immigration. But there's also, like in America, we discovered white privilege and were very violent and horrible towards the indigenous people here. So Irish people have to take ownership of that. But the thing about being Irish is, we, while our ancestors discovered white privilege, we don't have that history of colonization. We have a history also of knowing what it's like to be colonized, to be the victim, to, be, to have our culture eradicated. And I would like to see Irish people living in Australia use your position of privilege to share the fucking videos online, share the information, share the injustices that are happening now against indigenous people. And let people know. I'm conscious of time here, lads, because it's quarter to 11. So, Paul Lichnitsky, <laughs> doctor, that was incredible, man. That was in- so fucking interesting, Thanks. and Thank it was a pleasure. Thanks. And... To all of ye, lads, thank you so much. This was one of those podcasts where there's like, there's fucking 800 people here and it felt like a tiny room of a few people at an, an interesting gaff party where someone interesting starts talking. <laughs> Genuinely, it was a lovely, intimate experience and thank you so much for doing it, all right? Thanks. Yart, have a good night.